The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. MLB show. Here are your hosts, the luckiest men on the face of the earth, Chase Podorski and Bryce Holden. Welcome to episode 55 of the Underdog Sports Baseball Show with Bryce Holden. My name is Chase Podorski. Bryce, we are in what feels like week number infinity of quarantine under the coronavirus. How are you holding up in the city? Uh, getting by, as a, as my grandpa would say, uh, he would say, getting by. I just started, you know what? I've been playing through all my video games, and as fun as I thought just, like, playing the old games would be, they're not as much fun by yourself. So, I've, I've, last night I started an NBA 2K, a guy, and that seems to be good enough at entertaining me by myself my i was good at the 2k6 franchise but there's a major flaw because teams really don't use their salary cap space during free agency so you can just buy a bunch of pitchers and then you kind of win all the time so is mlb 2k6 the one where they have the uh world baseball classic rosters um i only do i do franchise mode I just go jump. I dive head first into franchise mode. I was the Angels. Bought myself a didn't buy. Got Pujols first overall, or not for I don't know. Pujols I think felt the sixth in the in the uh, the major the fantasy draft. Crazy that 2006 Pujols would be the sixth player drafted. Thank you but for getting somehow, Pujols in. Thank you for getting him in early because I realized last week was maybe the first show ever that we did not mention Albert Pujols. You know, I, I think he's okay with that. And are you sure we didn't mention him? I'm pretty sure. I think the coronavirus really threw us for that big of a loop. I mean, I guess he actually would have been – I mean, if you want to do, like, a deep dive into pools, I don't – I mean, obviously the coronavirus won't stop him from making the haul, but there is a chance that he misses out on, on – I mean – I don't think he was going to catch Bonds, but maybe he doesn't get the 700 now. Maybe he's stuck yeah, in around at, eight. At right? 656, it does make it more and more increasingly unlikely that he'll hit 700 home runs the more that the season is delayed. Just because at a certain point, as much as they're paying Pujols, you know, now that they have Rendon, Trout, Upton, you know, you got to work Otani into the lineup as much as possible. I mean, at a certain point, the Angels are just going to have to give up at-bats that Pools was going to have, regardless of how much they're paying him. Um, I mean, again, he's still signed through the 2021 20, season. So, wow, I guess two years left on that contract. Yeah, I don't think Pools is going to get the 700 homers now. You think he gets another contract after this Angels deal? No, he'll be 41 years old. I mean, this Angels contract is going to go down as an all-time bad sports contract. Um, especially because it didn't even bring them the publicity that they wanted because they only made the playoffs once over the life of the contract. I think after this, 
Pools is going to retire as an inner circle Hall of Famer, you know, over 3,300 hits when all is said and done, close to 700 homers. He's over 2,000 ribbies. The average will dip slightly below 300, but, you know, for a guy with such prolific the power numbers, such as life. 300 for having these – it's incredible if you think about how bad he's been these last 10 years that he's still going to end up close to 300. Yeah, I mean, as an, as an angel – um, he's a career 258 hitter with a 764 OPS, and despite that, he was so good with the Cardinals that he's still a 300 career hitter with a 927 career OPS. So if you want a snapshot of just how good Albert Pujols was the first 10, 11 years of his career with St. Louis, I think that sums it up better than anything. Love you, Albert. We love you, Albert. And as it pertains to the coronavirus, um, you, anyone who knows me knows I love my tie-dyes. I love my Grateful Dead. I've just been repeating this line from the Dead song, Touching Gray, um, which is, I will get by, I will survive. And then at the end, it changes to, we will get by, uh, we will survive. And, you know, I got to think eventually with enough social quarantining, uh, we will survive. And hopefully life goes back to normal soon. Yeah. You just, uh, just got to hope at this point. No sense fingers. in uh, yeah, fingers crossed. No sense in being a pessimist on it. Just you know, it's it's going to end. This is not going to be the rest of your life. This isn't going to be the rest of time, but it is going to be the foreseeable future. So to keep things consistent, though, number fifty-five, Yankee number fifty-five. Oh, okay. uh, for me, for me and you, it, for me and you, it was a big all-star growing up, and that was. Uh, Hideki Matsui, one of the guys who, along with Ichiro, I would say, you know, made it very common and popular for Japanese players to come over and play in the USA. Even prior to him, though, uh, Ramiro Mendoza, never an all-star, but, you know, a big part of the Yankee bullpen uh, from 96 to 2001 on all those World Series teams. Um, And then since Matsui, there actually has been another all-star. Russell Martin wore it in 11 and 12 and made the all-star team wearing number 55. Another one of my favorite disrespectful. Would you you think that I I thought Matsui deserved that number on layaway a bit longer? Yeah, I agree. Uh, But I'm keep in mind his last game as a Yankee, he won the World Series MVP. I agree. I mean, they didn't issue it to anybody in the 2010 season, Um, and I think with Russell Martin, at least it was like an established veteran, you know, who had been an All Star a few times with the Dodgers. They didn't just give it away to anybody. Another guy who wore 55, one of my favorites in 2013. I actually have a picture with him from that season. RBI machine, Lyle Overbay. Uh, Sonny Lyle Gray wore it. Overbay. Sonny Gray wore it for his uneventful year and a half in pinstripes in 2017 and 2018. And it is currently worn. Um, who knows what we're going to see this guy in pinstripes again at this point. Could be the 2021 season given his suspension. But currently number 55 on the Yankees, 18-game winner, Domingo Herman. Herman's fifty. Herman is fifty-five. I, you know what? For some reason, that I never, I never remember that. It's because right now you choose to focus on the bad with Herman. Not that I blame you one bit. That's just the reality we live in. Yeah. So I guess it's been. It's actually been worn by a string of decent players, for whatever it's worth. Yeah, I mean, you definitely. Know? I mean, again, I left out the, you know. David Hupps and Brian Mitchells of the world that were in between um, oh, so Russell Martin. Yeah, I left out a few bad guys. 
Um, I guess for the most part, it's numbers. been pretty solid. Yeah, cool so number. So, Anytime you can get a nickel. double number, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. So, so before we get yeah, into Rob Matsui, definitely no, Matsui uh, is the guy. Until further notice, Matsui is going to be – Matsui will be remembered as 55. So before we get into Rob Manfred's interview with Scott Van Pelt on ESPN Wednesday, as well as the deal between the MLB and the MLB Players Association, that was released Thursday. Then to wrap it up, we're going to do uh, our second edition of Baseball Rewatchables here on the podcast. Um, but a question for you that I, you know, I just thought of kind of as we were talking about Matsui is um, the IOC announced that the – Olympics uh, are being moved to 2021. Figured they're going to be summer games 2021. It'll be no later than that. Um, and the MLB also has the World Baseball Classic um, during spring training in 2021. So my question for you is, do you think, especially given the unpredictability of when the season is going to start this year, that front offices aren't going to let players participate in the World Baseball Classic and the Olympics, or it'll be kind of a strict either or, especially as it pertains to minor league guys. Well, doesn't – the World Baseball Classic, that, that's pretty heavy. That's a lot of major leaguers, right? A lot of, it's predominantly it's, major leaguers. Yeah, I'd say it's predominantly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and those guys aren't missing season time for the Olympics. They're just – that's not what they're going to do. I don't, they, they're not allowed to miss the MLB Correct. players. MLB, so – it doesn't really matter there. It's just minor leaguers. I, like, it's gonna, that's a lot of international high-level baseball competition for a year. Um, probably it's not what anyone had in mind when they brought baseball back into the Olympics. So we'll see how that all works out. I would guess that you're allowed to just partake in both because I think outside of the major – outside of the MLB – the uh, the other two competitions are given a higher priority than most other professional baseball leagues. So they just go and let their players play where they want to play. That is a good answer. Um, so this Wednesday on ESPN, Rob Maffer gave an interview with the one, the only Scott Van Pelt, Van Pelt on the eve of what was supposed to be opening day. And he vowed that baseball will be back and will be part of the recovery and that nothing's off the table as the sport outlines its plan to return from coronavirus-related postponements. Uh, Manfred said he hopes the sport can begin preparing for a season at some point in May, but the league will work with infectious disease experts before determining its exact return. The one thing I know for sure is baseball will be back, Manfred said. Whenever it's safe to play, we'll be back. Our fans will be back. Our players will be back, and we will be part of the recovery, the healing in this country from this particular pandemic. Um, look, my optimistic outlook is that at some point in May, we'll be gearing back up, he added. We'll have to make a determination depending on what the precise date is as to how much of a preparation period we need, whether that preparation period is going to be done in the club's home cities or back in Florida and Arizona. And I think, again, I think the goal would be to get as many regular season games as possible and think creatively about how we can accomplish that goal. Manfred told Van Pelt, we're probably not going to be able to do a 162-game season. I think that's clear. What MLB can do, Manfred said, is experiment and make sure we provide as many games as possible and as entertaining as a product as possible. Manfred later added, I think we are open and we've had some really positive conversations with our Players Association about relaxing some of the rules that govern our schedule. They're very focused on returning to play and playing as many games as possible, and when you have that kind of positive dialogue, it creates an opportunity to do things that are a little different. You're not committed to them over the long term because this year is a unique circumstance, but there's a lot of ideas out there, and we really are open to all of them. 
These ideas included an increase in doubleheaders, and Manfred did not roll out the seven-inning variety, though players could object because that would further cut into their statistical output. I've said publicly before that there's some numbers in baseball you can't change. Nine innings is one of them, Manfred said. When I said that, I wasn't thinking about this particular crisis, so I'm sure it's something that will get some discussion. Other possibilities, sources said, include a neutral site World Series to allow the regular season to stretch into October and the championship series to be held in a warm weather city and an expanded playoff system. But let's start with this. Manfred had one other point um, that I want to get to separately. To me, this is the first time in a long time Rob Manfred said all the right things. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I like, hate to be like, say a political thing. Basically, everyone on the planet is saying the right thing except for Trump. It's really easy to say the right thing in this situation because there's so much. It's so easy. I mean, look, no one knows anything. As long as you say the right thing, you're in good shape. You just say stuff like, uh, what do you say? You just say stuff like, we'll do it. We're going to be back. We're going to come back. You just kind of gave a bunch of, like, Bush, Bush League noncommittal answers that sound to you optimistic, and then you said the right thing. Unless, of course, you're the president, who's kind of like a – but it's not a political podcast. So, so, so my, my two anyway. things here that I, that I really want to ask you about are, you know, one, he explicitly says, well, we all knew that there's not going to be 162 games. Um, what are your thoughts, though, on the idea of a doubleheader where the second game of the doubleheader is seven innings long? I mean, that, that would only work this season. That, that shouldn't be Correct. a thing going forward. Um, I kind of like it. If they're that concerned about getting as many games as possible, if you get games in, even if you do two seven-inning games as a doubleheader, just to get – just to fill up um, – just to fill up the win column, fill up the, just get the games in, it works. could be fun. Uh, they used to do scheduled doubleheaders. That used to be like a very popular part of the scheduling. But I think with TV money, that kind of became impossible and ended up losing cat, losing value on the games. Cause, but now people are just going to be so desperate to get sports. People are, I mean, you know I've been following this the camp Instagram competition like crazy just because it's a competition. So, um, yeah, no, if there's just any way to get more things out, more content, more live, more competition, people would be all over it. So any way you can work that in would be great. Yeah, and to me, if you're doing a nine and a seven inning game, you know that's an average of eight innings a game. You're only losing two. I don't think that's going to impact statistics too much because there aren't going to be that much of an excess of doubleheaders. To me, though, this is such an easy way. You know, if the players and the players' association is concerned about players' health because of how unusual the schedule's been, to me, you chop two innings off of every doubleheader. That's a very easy and painless way to help ensure players are going to get healthier. Um, in the case of relief pitchers, especially are going to be, you know, pitching fewer innings in terms of getting injury or getting injured. My other question is, what, what do you think about the concept of a potential neutral site world series? Should the world series need to be played into November? I think that's dumb. I, I actually despise that idea. I, I think, I think they have to, they have to keep the end of the season where it is because and you, it's the World Series has always been the, the World Series. You get you play the baseball. Baseball plays their their postseason at their home stadium, and taking away World Series or playoff games from a home team is ridiculous. If it's a Yankees Dodgers World Series, 
you got to have those games in New York and L.A. Because at the end, I think when the whole season, when it comes down to it, the, in the, the big picture of things, people are always going to remember this as the coronavirus season. And at the end of the day, if it's, even if they get, let's say they play 81, let's say they only play half a season, but the World Series ends up being New York, L.A., the 81 games aren't going to, missed games aren't going to matter. The thing that people are going to remember about the season is how the Yankees and Dodgers met up in the World Series. Couldn't agree more. And, and at the end of the day, whether it's big fan bases like the Yankees and Dodgers or even fan bases that haven't been there in a while, um, like the Minnesota Twins, for instance, where it's going to be cold in November, it doesn't matter what the temperature is going to be. If your team's in the World Series, fans are going to be there. It's as simple as that. Um, and especially, I think, I think the Twins are a great example, whether it's the Twins or you look at a team that, you know, hasn't been past the first round of the playoffs in quite some time, like the Atlanta Braves, you know, those fan bases, you know, their team hasn't been there in a while. They're going to shell out and support their franchise, no matter what the temperature is outside. Um, And I think that's something they need to keep in mind. One last piece that Rob Manfred said in this interview, um, he said that Manfred's juggling of a deal with players, a proposal to pay minor league players and securing a pledge from owners not to make cost cutting moves until May has kept him from a much-anticipated ruling on the allegations that the Boston Red Sox illegally stole signs during their championship win in 2018 season. We are done with the investigation, Manfred said. There's been a delay in terms of producing a written report just because I frankly have not had time to turn to it with the other issues, but we will get a Boston report out before you resume play. The verdict's in. What do you think it's going to be? It's not going to be as bad as the Astros. Um, but at this point, it's kind of... It's kind of been forgotten, a lot of the details that we talked about earlier, at least on my end. So, but everything seems like they're going to get a lesser punishment than the Red Sox. Core is probably going to be suspended for this half, for whatever this 2018 season ends up being. But I, I think the report's going to come out, and if Boston wants to bring him back come 2021, they will be allowed to do so. So that was going to be my question. You just mentioned he's going to be suspended for whatever this season is. So Hinch got 162 games, and it seems like Cora was a bigger transgressor in the sign stealing scandal in general because he not only was the ringleader with the Astros, but then he supposedly brought it over the Red Sox. Do you think his suspension is going to just be for the 2020 season, or do you think they'll say it's got to be the full 162 games or it would carry into whatever you know the 2021 season looks like? You know, I, I, it's so tough to say because we haven't been keeping up on this ever since the – we haven't been keeping the up on this for a while. Since the real world hit. But it seems like Boston as a whole punishment will be less. If they want to really bring the hammer down on Cora, they might. But I don't, I don't think that. I think they're just going to kind of move on. and This whole thing's a wash anyway. This whole thing is kind of a mess. I'm with you that there. it's probably not uh, in their best interest to bring it back in the, the uh, in the spotlight because if they do announce a crazy punishment, that's all the people are going to talk about for a day. And it's very dull in the dull of sports media uh, news cycle we're in. So if they're going to be a like, crazy penalty, but I agree. It's we'll like, see. It, in a weird in a weird way, the coronavirus as detrimental has been as, as it's been CMLB. The sign stealing has become such a non-factor and it's been such in the periphery of sports fans that I agree with you. It's not something that you necessarily want to bring back to the forefront. Um, or if you do, 
I think you got to announce this right before games play so that there's something to distract fans from it, not where we're just still waiting for baseball and the announcement is made. Yeah, that's well said. Well put. Well, after Manfred's press conference on Wednesday, the MLB uh, owners of the Players Association, um, they reached a deal Thursday addressing many of the outstanding questions facing the game in the wake of the coronavirus shutdown, including how the two sides will address a shortened or perhaps altogether canceled 2020 season. The specifics of this agreement still aren't fully known due in part to the ongoing fluidity of how baseball and the Players Union will have to adjust to future events that we've already learned in quite a few ways what the sports sp- uh, in ways in which the sports structure will be altered for this wholly unique uh, season. All of this info, again, Jeff Passan and Kylie McDaniel, uh, they laid this out super clear on ESPN.com, a great job by them. Um, so I'm just going to kind of go down the list of what they reported just because I think they do it in a very simple to understand and well-articulated way. Starting off with why this was necessary, um, and that was because with MLB's original opening day, Scheduled for Thursday, March 26th, the league faced a deadline on how it would handle player contracts. Paragraph 11 of the uniform player contract allows Commissioner Rob Manfred to suspend deals in the case of a national emergency, which President Donald Trump declared March 13th. Had the agreement not been agreed upon by the players Thursday and ratified by the owners Friday, Manfred could have invoked paragraph 11. Neither he nor the players wanted to display this in the midst of a health crisis, so the incentive for both sides to compromise was strong. Let me ask you this. I know Rob Manfred has said a lot of the wrong things in the past, you know, four or five months or so, but there's no way that he would have actually invoked this. Do you think there's any chance he was going to withhold player salary essentially just because he could because Trump declared a national emergency? No, that, that would have been ridiculous. That would have been so ridiculous, even for Manfred, who we both have a lot of shit to say about, but this would have been too much even, even coming from that guy. I I agree. This would have been the PR nightmare of all PR nightmares. Um, So regarding when when baseball is back and a potential schedule, here's what the agreement said. Uh, Before anything else, this agreement addresses resumption of play and says both parties will work in good faith to complete the fullest 2020 championship season and postseason that is economically feasible. The agreement outlines three necessities to start the 2020 season that would offer significant caveats that allow Manfred in consultation with the union to override them. One, no governmental edicts on mass gatherings that would prevent teams from playing in their home stadiums. Two, no travel restrictions in the U.S. or Canada. And three, the determination after talking with health experts and the union that playing does not expose players, staff, or fans to health risks. The caveats are the key to the seminal part of the agreement. Manfred, it says, can consider the use of neutral sites instead of home stadiums, as well as the possibility of playing in front of no fans. No, not ideal games with no fans in areas that are not coronavirus hotspots provide the clearest path towards games being played. My two questions for you here, Bryce, are, one, um, do you think, given that they have the governmental edicts, you know, clause in here, that we really could be looking toward, you know, neutral site games, just given who knows when the government are going to give the okay? Um, And two, do you think they got it right with those three rules that they passed for when the games will be played again? I mean, the, the, I, I think I just hate the concept of a neutral site game. It's it, more so with baseball than anything else. Well, I mean, look, the thing with well, neutral site in all sports, it, it, you, the home team loses out a lot of the home field advantage. Not, I mean, just because of their their comfort, their schedule, their daily routine. They, they're not at home. That's a massive. You're staying in a hotel if you're at a neutral site, um, and especially in baseball. Teams' ballparks are different dimensions. That's a uh, like people design their 
people build teams to fit their ballpark. Like whether you have different turf, whether you have different like longer right field, some like green monster, people build their teams to play in their home ballpark. So everything but that's ridiculous. No fans is interesting. Um, I mean, there was that one bizarre game in Baltimore with no fans about what five years ago. Yeah, Orioles White Sox game that was played in an empty stadium due to riots in Baltimore. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was the right thing to do, but it's certainly weird. And I don't think the players have as much enjoyment out of it. I know LeBron has been pretty pretty vocal about how he wouldn't like that. And a lot of the fun they get as players is doing it with the fans or either hearing the home fans cheer or getting like, the other team, the other crowd upset. You know, that's like, it's just part of what they do. But if this is how games have to go on, this is how games have to go on. I would way, I would much rather see neutral, or much rather see games at home ballparks with no fans than neutral sites with no fans. Because I think if they're doing no fans anyway, you might as well let these guys go to their home stadium, right? So I guess with that in mind, my my follow-up question would be, you know, I, I agree with you. I want games to be played in the team's home stadium. I mean, you look no further than the Yankees. You know, we build our lineup to national run. That's what Yankee Stadium's dimensions allow for. But given if you don't want that to occur and they're waiting until the complete, you know, all clear from the government, no edicts and no travel restrictions in any region of the United States or Canada, you know, what do you think is realistically the earliest time then that we'll see baseball games being played at home ballparks? Because to me, I think the absolute earliest would be mid to end of June then. Yeah, because I think you're going to want about – the thing, the virus, I mean, the virus sets its own timeline here. Um, you're probably going to want to see two weeks of any, I would say, I mean, it's pretty safe. We're recording this on March 29th. Happy birthday, Randy. Uh, so we're probably, best case scenario, we're probably two weeks away from, from peaking in the United States. Um, and after we peak, eventually we're going to want to see probably two or so weeks of a substantial flattening of the curve to just resume normal, to just try and resume normal life, go back to work, possibly. Uh, did Ellen, I know colleges shut down. You know, if like high schools and public, local public schools, have they committed I know, to going on, online I know for the rest of the high, year? I know Livingston High School um, is online indefinitely. I don't know if they've committed to the rest of the year yet, but there's no okay, current so, return date, but like, but maybe if it's indefinite, they could put. Uh, again, like I'm a college senior. I know high school seniors want to be there for that last month, so we'll see how it all turns out. But you, even we're months we're months away from even that happening. But getting travel back up and running is it's another animal to itself. So I would say we're looking at an opening day weekend around July 4th might be pretty fun. So going hand-in-hand hand with that, uh, in regards to the potential schedule, that remains completely TBD. Uh, the agreement illustrates just how open-minded both parties are to achieving a shared goal, which is as much baseball as possible. MLB is willing to amend roster rules to ensure a shortened spring training 2.0, where games could begin as soon as two weeks after players report to camps to prepare for the season, um, which doesn't leave teams hurting for innings because starting pitchers aren't stretched out. Players are willing to schedule more doubleheaders to squeeze in as many games as possible, and both were fine with the regular season stretching into October and the postseason into November. 
Uh, other suggestions have been a neutral site World Series and a warm weather location, expanded playoffs of a new and potentially unique variety, uh, amongst other ideas. Uh, players want to play, said Tony Clark, the executive director of the MLBPA. That's what they do, and being able to get back on the field and being able to play, even if that means their fans are watching at home, is something they all express a desire and an interest to do as soon as possible. The best-case scenario seems to be that players head to camp in mid-May and target a return in early June. That might be wishful, but it is where they are for now. And if they do, then 130-game schedule is not out of the realm of possibility. It's quite optimistic, though, and anywhere from 80 to 100 games would be a huge win. My big takeaway here from Tony Clark, I like that the players are willing to be flexible. I don't love that they're willing to do anything to get back on the field and get paid to the point where fans might not be there. But again, I digress. Uh, but the big thing here for me, I think 100 games is a great magic number to shoot for uh, just because it's the number 100. It's a, it's a good number. Yeah, it's easy. It's easy. And again, 100 games is still enough. That, And if the end product is what it is, no one's going to – no one's going to hold the strike or the, not the strike, but uh, the short season against them. Like LeBron's first title he won during after the lockout. And you never hear that get brought up. I want to say I'm going to, I'm going to give you a similar take, but let me just confirm it. Um, you know who else won his first NBA championship in a shortened season? Duncan. Tim Duncan and David Robinson. Yeah, but I think that season actually really – like, I've heard Simmons talk about it. Again, I was one years old during this. Um, I think that season they had an issue. Like, they actually really packed it in tightly, and they overworked people. That um, – like, the eight-seed Knicks made the finals that year. But that was a that was a fluky thing. But LeBron's season was fine. As soon as you said the Knicks in the finals, I knew it was fluky. Um, but the biggest part of this agreement was over service time and salaries. Um, service time, which, again, awards players for days spent in the major leagues and goes towards determining free agency, arbitration eligibility, and pension uh, was the focal point of this agreement, particularly service time in the event of the lost season. For days, the union insisted that major league players receive full service regardless of the outcome. Um, when MLB relented, thus grant- guaranteeing Mookie Betts, J.T. Realmuto, George Springer, Trevor Bauer and Marcus Stroman, amongst others, the right to be free agents this winter. The deal went from probable to a near certainty. Only players who logged an entire season of Major League Service last year will receive the full year in the doomsday scenario. If a season is played, a full year of service can be earned, even if the season is shorter than the typical 172 days to reach that milestone. In regards to salaries, player salaries for 2020 will be prorated. If the teams play an 81-game schedule, players will get 50% of their full agreed-upon money. If they play 120 games, they'll receive 74%, and so on and so forth. Performance bonus clauses will be prorated, too. And this is the big thing. If the season is canceled, the only payment players will receive is the $170 million advance teams guaranteed players to be distributed in April and May. The money is essentially a down payment on salaries for 2020. Should games be played, it will be factored into paychecks, and if no games are played, the players get to keep the $170 million with that repayment. The agreement adds that players cannot sue for their salaries, an important distinction, even though Paragraph 11 almost certainly would have held in a grievance setting. The biggest winner in all of this are all major league players who have reached arbitration and thus do not have contracts with a different salary, whether they are in the major leagues or the minor leagues. They will receive $5,000 a day in April and May, or about $150,000 a month. So, again, it seems like the major, major league baseball – uh, the Players Association, in the interest of preserving service time for future generations, you know, they sacrifice upfront money 
um, in the event that the season gets canceled um, in exchange for service time to be had for players. I, to me, this is a big trade-off. I think if you were a player already making a lot of money, this locks you into a nice deal. We'll go into the specific financial breakdown in a second. But to me, this is like if you're the Glaber Torres and the Pete Alonzos of the world, you know, the young stars who haven't reached arbitration, um, even though you're going to get that full year of service time towards your payday, in the now, you kind of got screwed in that regard. What do you think? Yeah, it sucks to be young. Young people are getting shafted on this one. But I, I, there's only so many concessions the owners are going to make. They, at least they're getting at least they're getting the service time year in. And that's big in the long run. I'd say that's the biggest yeah, I, win for guys like Alonzo I, and Glaber. I agree with that. I think the interesting language becomes, you know, to get the year, say there is a doomsday scenario, as long as you had a year of service time last year, you know, you get the full year this time. Where that becomes interesting, I would say, is for a guy like uh, Luis Robert, who signed a big extension in the offseason without ever playing in the big. You know, he didn't play in the majors at all last year, um, despite signing that big contract this offseason. So now his free agency gets delayed another year. Um, so, uh, again, it's really these young guys and the minor league guys who, in the short term, I think, are really getting the shaft. But like you said, there's only so many concessions the owners are willing to make. Um, in terms of how the money is broken down, um, for pre-arbitration players, the three other class of players, as defined by the MLBPA's plan to split the advance, um, a young star like Juan Soto of the Nationals has what's called a split contract, which calls for him to be paid $629,400 in the major league and $289,150 in the minor league. Players with split deals for more than $150,000 in the minors will receive $1,000 a day or around sixty grand a month. Um, stud rookies like Bo Bichette of the Blue Jays. Uh, wait, you go, you, a, wait, Chase, Chase, say that again. Which part of it was not clear? But how much the minor leaguers are getting in today? Sorry, guys with – so, again, because Soto has minor league options technically. I think what it's meant to say is if you have minor league options but your salary is for more than 150 grand, you'll receive $1,000 a day or around 60 grand a month. Can you do that math out for me? Well, the 60 thousand grand a month, of, again, again, $1,000, it's only for two months, though. Oh, so total. Okay. Correct. All of these advances are for, uh, yeah, around $50,000 total. That's my fault. Um, if you're a stud rookie like Bo Bichette of the Blue Jays, you're on a split deal with a minor league salary that's in the $91,800 to $149,999 range. You'll get $500 a day, half of what Soto's making, and 10% that of a veteran. Um, and if you're a top prospect like Christian Patch, whom the Atlanta Braves added to their 40-man roster this winter, um, you'll get the minimum for a split deal, uh, which is $46,000, and on those split deals, you'll be paid $275 a day or somewhere in the neighborhood of $16,500 total, which, again, for a minor leaguer is better than nothing. Um, the people who lose the most are non-roster invites to current free agents, non-roster players who sign minor league deals hoping to get added um, to a 40-man roster for opening date don't get a penny, though the union is considering ways to financially assist those players, and current free agents are prohibited from signing thanks to a roster freeze that went into an effect upon the player's ratification of the agreement. Um, again, I think this kind of outlines with specifics what we just said. You know, if you're a minor leaguer like Christian Pash, the 16000 is better than nothing. But if you're like a Bo Bichette or a Juan Soto, and, you know, you're this young stud, I mean, this sucks for you. 
Yeah, it sucks to lose money, but you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. You can't go case-by-case case basis for everyone. You just have to go in with the masses and hope that you'll make it back someday. So the arbitration and luxury tax systems are getting adjusted. Uh, the arbitration system will be adjusted to consider lessening counting statistics because of the shorter season and salary secured during the 2021 offseason through arbitration won't be used in the president-based system going forward. And in terms of the luxury tax, when determining which teams have exceeded luxury tax thresholds, the league will base it on what full season salaries were supposed to be, not prorated salary payment. The taxes paid, however, will be on a prorated basis. And if there is no season, there will be no taxes owned, implying every team would reset to the lowest competitive balance tax threshold. This, to me, is two huge wins for the players uh, because not only is the arbitration system being rightfully skewed towards the players in terms of the statistics they put up in a strike-shortened season, but because the luxury tax would be prorated as well, once free agency hits, and we mentioned some of the guys you know, who are going to make up a big free agent class, they're not getting screwed um, because teams are playing the proper amount of luxury tax relative to what they paid this season. Yeah, was there, yeah, was there a question? It seemed like we were just going there. I just, you know, what are your thoughts? Sometimes I just make my mind. My thoughts are you're crushing it, man. Just keep going. <laughs> you are on a roll. You are on a roll. Um, I, was so at my health, we, I was looking at my health data, if I'm being honest. Apparently, I'm exercising, I'm exercising 15 minutes less on average every day this year than last. And I'm taking about 3,000 less steps a day. So depending on when the season starts, players believe the All-Star game could be eliminated. Um, and for the Dodgers, this is a nightmare scenario because they were supposed to host the All-Star game. Um, and there's also a chance that if the season's canceled, they might not get Mookie Betts to play a single game in Dodger Blue. Um, all that said, if they do do a neutral site World Series, I said doo-doo, ha-ha. Um, do you think that the Dodgers, assuming the All-Star game gets canceled, need to be near or at top of the, uh, or at the top of that list? That, Chase, you and I have already placed the bet that the Dodgers are going to be in the World Series. Is that, is so that, is that fair? Is that, did that happen? So you, think, so you think the answer could be no, that Los Angeles isn't a good place to do it because you think the Dodgers are going to be in. I think the whole thing, I, I don't think they're going to do a neutral site World Series because it's, one, it's stupid. <laughs> well, two, it's stupid. It's fucked. You lose so much money for these teams that are supposed to be in the World Series. You lose a lot of the magic. I mean, I would also assume that by November that you will be allowed to have fans. And, and if, you know what? I'm just, if there's no fans in the stadiums come November, there's probably not going to – if fans aren't allowed in stadiums at that point, there's probably not going to be a season at that point. So all these things are, are, mute, are moved if that were to be the case. I'm totally with you on that point. Um, again, I, I think if fans aren't allowed in the stadium, you know, in July, who knows what it would look like for the postseason. Uh, so that is something you and I definitely agree on. The most controversial point of this entire deal, I would say, without question, uh, are the concessions that the MLBPA made regarding the draft. Um, historically, amateurs get the short, uh, you know, the short end of the stick in these agreements anyway, uh, because the owners want to suppress amateur salaries, and because amateurs aren't a part of the MLBPA, their interests often, you know, aren't a big part of what the union of professionals look at. Uh, so the agreement stated that the MLB has the right to move the 2020 MLB draft back from June 10th to as late as July 20th with a signing date as late as August 1st. A concrete date hasn't been set yet, and the rounds have been reduced from 40 to as few as five. 
though Manfred has the option to increase that number at his discretion and might do so if games are being played and revenue is coming in. MLB can also shorten the 2021 draft to as few as 20 rounds and move it to the same base. In both years, the payment of draft bonuses will be delayed significantly. While signing bonus slot values will remain the same as the 2019 draft, typically they increase 3 to 4% annually depending on revenues. The maximum upfront payment in 20 and 2021 will be 100 grand within 30 days of an approved contract. 50% of the remaining value will be paid on July 1st the next year, then the balance on July 1st two years later. Undrafted players cannot get more than 20 grand, even if a team is under its allotted draft pool in both the 2020 and 2021 drafts. This would be especially um, relevant in a five-round draft, and executives and agents agree that there would be significant financial jockeying by teams starting in perhaps the third round. For example, considering a, consider a fourth-round pick with a slot value of around 500000 A club could call a player and tell him that it will pay him 200000 if he agrees to sign at that pick. If the player doesn't accept that amount, he'll run the risk of going undrafted and maxing out at 10% of that. It's a difficult gamble to take, and while teams could use that extra three hundred grand to pay a higher-round pick, they also have the option of not spending the money at all. For both the 2020 and 2021 drafts, MLB has the right to organize a voluntary showcase for players, essentially a combine. Players on the MLB's Top 300 Medical Information Program, used to pool medical info for clubs on top prospects, may not provide exclusive data or video to one team without also offering it to MLB to be shared with all the teams. To curb the selling of draft picks, the agreement nullifies the team's ability to trade competitive balance selections, previously the only ones that could be traded in the 2020 or 2021 drafts. In the 2020 MLB season, if every team plays fewer than 81 games, the commissioner has the right, after negotiating with the MLBPA, to change the draft order for the 2021 draft. There's a lot to break down here, but again, this, this to me seems like it could be a slightly short-sighted decision um, that could really affect the status of baseball for years to come. Um, the biggest way of being, you know, I think more players are going to go to college and play baseball now. So you're not only affecting your minor league pools for the 2020 and 2021 season, but, you know, maybe going as far as the 2023 to 2024 season. Uh, what are your thoughts on all of these points for the draft? I think the draft is going to get a major facelift anyway, once they uh, cut back on all these minor league programs. Once they have to do a reduction of minor league teams, the 41 draft would be, not that it's not ridiculous already, but it's going to be, Utterly ridiculous going forward. I, I mean, that sense, why the hell do you need 40 rounds of drafts if you only have, say, 75 roster spots between your three teams? No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you now. I, I just think – I think to go to 20 rounds would have been one thing. You know, if the draft this year is five rounds, that would mean there's 150 players. You're reducing that number – from well, I don't think you can make that change now. I think you have to. I think that change has to be done more gradually over time and in conjunction with the minor league contraction. No, I I agree, but say say worst case scenario, the MLB, you know, the MLB owners do draft do reduce the draft to five rounds, which they are now contractually able contractually able to do. You would have over one thousand fewer players getting drafted this year than the year before. Which, again, forget the lower levels in the minor league systems. You know, those are double-A players then that you're talking about. Or, you know, in some cases, no, those are, are people really that, a triple-A player. Yeah, no, there's certainly if – you, if you reduce 1,000-plus players, you're definitely going to miss out on, on people with big league potential. And that's not really fair. It's not fair to these, to these kids who worked their whole lives for this and, and now ended up 
with their shot, they got to take it away because of the virus. But again, it's the tough reality of this situation. Everybody's losing something. Yeah, the example they gave is like Paul Goldschmidt was an eighth-round pick. Um, you know, who knows if he signed when he did just because, again, for $20,000, maybe you do go back to school or keep playing. Um, it's, it's just interesting. And, and to me, it really gives an, it gives an advantage to a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers who not only have money to spend but, you know, have developed their farm system so well the past few years where they who could point to a 13th-round pick. All the more reason that proves my point. You know, these teams like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Braves, who have money and have developed farm systems strongly, you know, if the draft's only five rounds, that's a ton of top amateur talent available, and they'll have the competitive advantage of then saying, hey, look what we've done to our guys. You know, come play here. Come use our facilities. We're going to be your best chance to succeed, uh, which, again, as a Yankee fan, I'm stoked about. But if I'm a fan of a mid-market team where the draft does give you your one semi-competitive advantage, you know, you're really getting the shaft here. Um, Scott Boris, a longtime advocate for draft rights, lashed out telling the athletic, it's unconsciousable that the owners in this climate would reduce the collective bargain money given the drafted players in the top round. I don't mind them reducing the rounds. That's not the issue. It's reducing the payments to those players to cut their bonuses in this climate and use a pandemic situation in our country is a mean to do it. I really find it unconscionable. Um, I kind of agree with him. Um, looking at the college baseball aspect of things for amateur players, it's a lot of bad news. Those inclined to sign and turn pro in the 2020 draft might receive similar money to last year, and it will be paid over a two-year period without interest. The loss is marginal but real. The college junior set to sign for 300000 after the fifth round, who turned down money out of high school in anticipation of this day, gets hit the hardest. It's either twenty grand this year or probably the same as a senior next year due to reduced negotiating leverage, not to mention the fact that college coaches might prefer to spend some of their 11.7 scholarships on incoming freshmen who could contribute for three years rather than keep a senior. It will be a boom for college baseball because of the influx of talent. Uh, fewer high school prospects will turn pro. College juniors can return to school. And same for seniors if granted extra eligibility. Um, but, again, it might get ugly trying to make a new roster amid all of the college coaching staff's prior assumptions and commitments, but there will be more talent across the board. Uh, to me, the biggest thing here, it's, it's the college junior, you know, who will be going pro as a senior or the senior who might be going pro um, and now after all those years only get $20,000. Uh, and, again, I just think I agree with you. Not everyone's going to get what they want and people have to adjust. But to me, they pretty much guarantee that amateur players have no leverage, you know, going forward for the next few years in terms of getting paid anywhere near what they're supposed to get paid. Uh, which is even more of an issue because if minor leaguers aren't going to get paid properly, you know, if you were a top draft pick, even in the top 10 rounds, you had a six-figure signing bonus to look forward to. Uh, now that is so far from a guarantee. Hey, man. It's tough. At least you're going to get to play baseball for a living. There are a bunch of people who aren't going to get to play baseball for a living and are still fucked by this whole thing. Can't argue but that. I guess I, have, uh, this whole, I guess I have a lot less sympathy for these players than you. No, that's true. Uh, and in terms of the international signing period, Commissioner Manfred has the right to delay the 20 to 21 signing period, which was set to begin on July 2nd until as late as January 15th, 2021 through December 15th, 2021. While there is a concrete bonus deferral for the international realm like the draft, this is this big of a potential delay could act as a version of one. Should the MLB de delay the beginning of the new signing calendar, there would be a dead period from July 2nd, 2020 to the beginning of the 2020 to 21 class. 
The league also can push back the 2021 to 22 signing period to January 15th, 2022nd through December 15th, 2022. 2022. Uh, the bonus pools for 2020 to 21 and 21 to 22 signing periods will be the same as 19 to 20. Teams will not be allowed to trade pool space. They could previously trade for up to 50% on top of their original pool for both periods. Uh, again, most of the 19 to 20 money is spent and most of the 20 to 21 money is already committed. Teams could try to renegotiate deals for the next signing period, though that would be seen as a deep breach of trust by the trainers who develop most of the talent in Latin American countries. Uh, and this really is a potential disaster for two different economies. The first is for players because a not insignificant right. percentage of elite players' families take out high-interest loans against their expected bonuses. Um, and again, if the loan payment doesn't come on time, if this timeline gets pushed back, that could wipe out a significant portion of the bonus money they do receive. Um, and further, when Latin American teenagers sign with major league teams, they almost never send their first season in the U.S. and thus are not subject to U.S. tax laws on the bonus. Top players from the 2020 to 21 class who signed in January 2021 could be asked to play in the States and would find their bonuses taxed accordingly. Uh, to me, this all just seems like the perfect way for the MLB to push their agenda of doing an international draft come 2022. Um, but what do you think? I, I mean, to me, the international players could be in even deeper trouble here because there's a chance that anyone who thought they were going to get paid this season may not get paid until January 2021 at the absolute earliest. Yeah, and again, that sucks. Facing a pandemic, everyone suffers. So, I like, I really, honestly, I I could be. Like, they're they're gonna get paid if you're good enough. If you're good enough, you're gonna get paid. It's the fringe guys that have to be worried. It's the people who aren't good that are gonna lose out the most. Because in the long run, everything's gonna work itself out. And if you can't play, you're not gonna get paid. So it kind of safeguards teams from making bad investments would be how the teams are looking at it, and that's what they're trying to avoid. And by going this route with the finances. So if you're good, you'll be fine. Fuck, and you know it, you're fucked. Yeah, I, I think a good way to sum up what you're saying is it's very similar to free agency where uh, it's the middle class of prospects, much like the middle class of free agents who are, you know, really taking a, a hurting in this climate. Correct. All right, couple more pieces. One more, one more piece of baseball news before we get into the movie realm. Uh, the Mets announced that Noah Syndergaard will undergo Tommy John surgery. Uh, he underwent the surgery on Thursday, and he'll be out at least until April of 2021. Uh, he successfully underwent the surgery Friday at the Hospital for Special Surgery in West Palm Beach, Florida. GM Brody Van Wagenen offered the following statement. After experiencing discomfort in his elbow before spring training was suspended due to the pandemic, Noah and our health and performance department have been in constant contact. Based on the persistence of his symptoms, Noah underwent a physical examination and MRI that revealed the ligament tear. A second opinion confirmed the diagnosis and the recommendation for surgery. Noah is an incredibly hard worker and a tremendous talent. While this is unfortunate, we have no doubt that Noah will be able to return to full strength and continue to be an integral part of our championship pursuits in the future. Bless you. Um, I texted you about this when you texted you. me about it. To, to me, this was completely out of nowhere. Yeah, I think I made the, the joke of everybody's just doing this as a precaution because they know there's going to be no season. But, yeah, this really, all kidding aside, this did come out of nowhere. Um, and it really does suck for the Mets. I think that was what uh, – well, I forgot when it was, but we were talking about the Mets versus Phillies, and I think I had the Phillies ahead. You had the Mets ahead um, for the season, but – now without Syndergaard and having to push everyone up in the rotation, um, 
this what does this change for your NL East outlook? Uh, to me, the Mets are no longer even in wild card contention. I would say as great as Degrom is, and I think Strowman's a good number two. You know, losing Wheeler is really big now, just because between Mads, Porcello, and Waka, you just don't know what you're going to get, and that's three fifths of your rotation. Uh, and to me, starting pitching is even bigger in the National League than the American League. You know, I think it's a big hit for the Mets, uh, but it's also a big hit for Syndergaard just because. Uh, you know, he avoided arbitration this winter at $9.7 million. Uh, he's probably going to get the exact same salary next year. Um, but he hits free agency after the 2021 season. You know, what do you think the contract's going to look like for a Noah Syndergaard who, you know, regardless of how many games are played this year, you know, he's going to miss whatever baseball is played this year and figure gets maybe at most three quarters of a season in in 2021 before hitting free agency. Uh, I mean, look, he's, He's young. He's young enough. This is this would be his big contract, right? This yeah, would be this, is the, this, is this would be this would be the ninth, the hundred plus million dollar contract. Um, does, is he a candidate to be a guy who actually takes a? Is he a qualifying offer guy? Would he take that offer just to to run it back and reestablish his his market? It really depends when he does end up coming back in twenty twenty one, but I could see him not jumping at we I'd say Wheeler money would have been its floor when what was that five for one almost 120 yeah I think it was five for 118 but I agree with you I, think I mean qualifying she, she would have done better but I mean I think, qualifying, I, think the qualifying, I think that could be good for both teams you know say he does comes back and pitches well during the stretch uh down the stretch he pitches for the Mets in 2022 you know, you still have him at the ground up top. You go for one last hurrah, and then again, he hits free agency at 30, where you know it wouldn't be as attractive as 29 or even 28, but he could still get a nice payday. A um, couple of quick fun things I saw, and then I promise we will get to our movie. Um, Bryce, what did you think of President Donald Trump uh, reaching out to A Rod for advice on the coronavirus? I think President Donald Trump's a fucking idiot. <laughs> okay. Say, say no more. Um, my last, my last baseball-related thing is which of these baseball facts is crazier to you? Uh, the first one is from Jeremy Frank, which is that the all-time leader in home runs while playing catcher Mike Piazza, second base Jeff Kent, and right field Sammy Sosa were all born in 1968, or from Barstool that Ken Griffey Jr. is the second is second all-time in hits by a left-handed outfielder born in Denora, Pennsylvania, on November 21st to stand the to stand the man usual. Uh, both of those are pretty crazy to me. Uh, you know, the 1968 thing, that's some Malcolm Gladwell outlier shit. But the fact that Griffey, amongst left-handed outfielders, born in a certain city on a certain date, doesn't have the most hits, and he has the second-highest Hall of Fame voting percentage of all time, that to me is truly astonishing. Does he have a higher percentage than Jeter? Ooh, that's I true. Think. Griffey is third now. I think he's third now. Um yeah, that there's a there's got to be a reason behind both Musial and Griffey being born there, but uh, the '68 that's three out of ten. They're what? They're what? Ten positions or eleven? If you want pitcher and DH is separate. The '68 thing's weird, man. The '68 thing is weird, and it's three instead of two. This is the fun, crazy stuff that we get to you know explore during a quarantine, uh, but. For our second baseball rewatchables, we are going to do the bench warmers, 
Bryce, I know this is one of your favorites, so I will let you give a brief synopsis into the movie, uh, and then I will lead the discussion. Well, I'll be short. Uh, Rob Schneider uh, is, a, uh, is a stud baseball player mowing the lawn in his spare time. I guess mowing is, he's just mowing the lawn, doing nothing. Uh, he ends up uh, rallying around the guy from – him and the guy from uh, – well, what movie is it, Chase? What am, I'm blanking completely. Napoleon, it's him, Napoleon Dynamite, and yeah. Joe Dirt. Yeah, Joe Dirt, Rob Schneider, Napoleon Dynamite somehow uh, ends up forming a baseball team. Yes, the three of them form an entire baseball team. And uh, they end up playing a bunch of kids in a tournament so John Lovitz can win the stadium that he built. Yeah, for, for a little bit more context, Rob Schneider is the pitcher. Um, David Spade's the catcher and John Herder, Napoleon Dynamite is the outfielder. And basically they see these kids, you know, get bullied by, you know, the typical deuce jock baseball kids. Um, and they stand up for the nerds because the premise is that the three of them growing up were the bench warmers and that they can relate to the kids. Uh, so with all that in mind, we'll get into the discussion. Um, the first of which, you know, when you talk about, we talked about last week, the idea of casting Gary Busey to be the child role model. Uh, and my question along those lines this week is when you're thinking of the macho jock baseball star of the group, how in the fuck is Rob Schneider the guy that you said a lot? I know it's a comedy movie and you need a guy who's a comedian, but five foot well, nothing, goofy Rob Schneider is nowhere near the t- top of the list. If anything, Adam Sandler already has convinced me many times that he's an all NBA type player. I would have rather seen Sandler in the role. Um, this movie based, pr- and I, it's very hard. To, to be below, to be, for a movie to be beneath Sandler. Benchwarmers may be uh, on that select list. That was too too much even for Sandler to do. That's true, because but, in uh, 2006, 2006, too, Sandler was for the most part still putting out pretty solid comedies. Yeah, he was still, he was right off, The Longest Yard was 05. And I like The Longest Yard. That's not yeah. the point. Uh, how did Schneider get this role? No idea. I think, I think part of the the appeal of Schneider in the role is that he's short. Maybe. So, you, so in other words, Schneider got the role because we could believe that he was a bench warmer. Well, I thought it wasn't the. I thought the rumor was that Schneider was like a stud athlete growing up. Oh, that that I can't speak upon. I have no idea. I thought Schneider's like was had like a like he was good at baseball. Like Schneider, we all, everyone knows Schneider's good at baseball. But he he doesn't have yeah. I mean he's way more of the Napoleon Dynamite of the David Spade Alex than the stud super athlete variety. You know, as as a quick aside, I looked at Sandler's like ten movies prior to two thousand six. So what would have been the lead in? you know, prior to the idea of this being beneath him. Um, and he really was on quite the incredible streak. It was going from 95 to 2005, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, The Wedding Singer, yep. The Waterboy, yep. Big yep. Daddy, Little Nicky, yep. Punch Drunk Love, Mr. Deeds, Anger Management, 51st Dates, The Longest Yard. Other than Little Nicky, those are all fantastic movies. And even Little Nicky has a lot of humor to it. Yeah, no, Sandler was doing well. Sandler was doing very well for a while. It was really, and I think, bedtime bedtime stories was the beginning of the end because even after that, it was no. Crazy. I like bedtime stories, dude. 
How do you not like I bedtime stories? I, I just think post bedtime stories, you know, that was that was kind of the turn. Because after the longest yard, you had Click, Chuck, and Larry, Zohan. Then after bedtime stories, it was, hey, he still made funny people. Grown-ups just go with it. The real beginning of the end was, without question, Jack and Jill in 2011. Yeah, I, I'm, I will never understand. If we ever get Al Pacino on this podcast, I think that's the first question we have to ask him. Just what the fuck were you thinking? Like, I get why Sandler would do something that bad. But you're Al Pacino. You were in Godfather. What the fuck is wrong with you? But anyway, back I'm to the bench warmers. Back to the bench warmers. So, you know, Rob Schneider's character, Guts, is the stud baseball player. He's striking people out. He's hitting home runs left and right to the point where, you know, um, Clark, whose character is played by John Hart, John Hurt and Napoleon Dynamite, he plays the outfield and never even touches the ball because the hitters don't touch Guts. You know, my question for you is, is Gus really that good at baseball? Or looking back now in hindsight, is he just that good because he's a grown-ass man playing against 12-year-old kids? It's a large part because he's playing 12-year-old kids. That's got to be, right? It's got yeah, It's Again, like, I'm not very good at I'm not a superstar athlete. But you throw me in camp up in, against these, these kids younger than I am, it's like, you put me against a 12-year-old kid with no, with no sporting background, I I can dominate offhanded. So, so this my, my, quick, my quick pivot to that is, do you think if you were hitting against an inter-summer Tyler Winderman that you were going to hit him? Because that would be the same concept. Travel caliber baseball player and an adult hitting against him. Um... Yeah, I, I would hit. I would hit pretty well. Okay, I would hit pretty well because it's again. There's just if I line if I hitting, yeah, I would I would do well enough just based on like okay. average hand eye coordination and plus size. Fair enough. Uh, you know the the plot twist at the end of this movie is that Gus wasn't really a bench warmer all along. Uh, in fact, he was the quintessential jock bully when he was in high school. But I guess even even more so than having to believe that Rob Schneider was a star baseball player, is there any way that you could believe that Rob Schneider was the guy who was the jock bully in high school to the point where he was bullying Terry Crews, of all people, in the movie? He was bullying Terry Crews and, I believe, Bill Kamenowski, who yeah, like, was a, well, like like a, Rob a giant roided-up Super Bowl champ. Like, if Rob Schneider's bullying me in high school, he's like a nerdy Jewish kid. I'm pushing him right back. No questions asked. But I tried to be that kid in high school, and I was unsuccessful. The I nerdy Jewish calling. kid or the one who fought back? No, I tried to. I was, like, I was looking for a new identity in high school, and I think I just sit with my friends at lunch one day. I'm like, you know what? School kind of lacks a bully. Like, maybe, maybe I could do it. And, and that's it. Like, that didn't even work. Uh, <laughs> I I, I, just, I I couldn't pull it off. I just would go around and tell them, like, hey, like, just so you know, like, I'm the new school bully. They're like, no, what? No? Who, who are you? Get away, man. You're a Lewis. It doesn't, doesn't work. Not as easy. Not as, it's a much easier said than done. Put it that way. All right. Fair enough. But, but do you believe that Rob Schneider could have been a bully? No. 
impossible. What is less? What is less? What is less believable? Rob Schneider, the bully, or Rob Schneider, the star baseball player? Probably Rob Schneider, the bully, because he's pretty funny, so he could make a lot of good insults. Okay, so one of the kids in this movie, um, again, the bench warmers, but he's also It's like a huge, very easy comeback. You know, that's true. So the bench warmers get in touch with uh, basically the way that they get into everything is they see this kid named Nelson uh, and his buddies getting bullied by the local Little League team. Um, and Nelson has a buddy named Sammy the Sprinkler. Um, and he's called Sammy the Sprinkler because every time he talks, he basically spits in your face. So my two questions are, you know, one, when you're in the writer's room, what makes you think that they thought that a character who spits in your face every time was a necessary addition to the film. Uh, and two, do you think Sammy the Sprinkler ever grew out of being a sprinkler? It's tough. Okay, well, do, I don't think you can ever grow out of being the sprinkler. I, you're, you're late. Like, a sprinkler is one of those things, like, you're a kid that wets the bed, you're always the guy that wets the bed. Or like, you're That's like, just your rep forever. Your rep, like... You're the guy that, like, farted at the movies, or I, I don't really know. Like, if you have some, like, weird, like, perspirating quirk about you, that, that, that sticks for life. Um, but Eve, so did, why was that included in the movie? Uh, there must have actually, there must, I would imagine that character is based off someone real. I would imagine that was based off someone one of the writers grew up with and presumably was picked on for his... Uh, for a spitting problem. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, one of the only actual baseball player to be in this movie, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Um, how much do you think they paid Reggie to be in this movie? Because, you know, this isn't like The Naked Gun where Reggie was in a comedic classic. This is a movie that was beneath Adam Sandler. Let that sink in for a second. How do you think they sold Mr. October to be in this movie? And do you think it just involved a crazy amount of money being thrown his way? Um, well, one, I do very much love the Naked Gun movies. But the, they are very funny. The juice is great in it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look into Reggie Jackson's IMDb page. Because I can't imagine he went all those years between. You can't imagine he went all those years between Naked Gun and this movie. Ah. He had a he had a feature in uh in basketball. And he did Oh my the, god, he's great in basketball. How could I have forgotten that? Yes. Oh yeah, okay. I remember. Okay, I think I know what we might do next week, Chase. Basketball? It might be basketball. But this is we'll an all time sports movie. movie. But yeah, <laughs> this movie's terrible. <laughs> this movie sucks. Um this is not Naked Gun. This is not basketball. This is – they must have just thrown a bunch of money at him. I think that's probably the, uh, the most likely solution, the most likely, the most likely path towards getting Reggie. So my other question is Reggie Jackson. I mean, Reggie Jackson, aside from being the most hyper-confident – one of the most hyper-confident players in baseball history, you know, Reggie's just a stud. He's Mr. October – always shine, you know, bright when the lights were on the bright, always shine the brightest on the big stage was what I meant to say. Uh, and in the movie, they show Reggie Jackson as a band geek who got bullied as a kid. Uh, there's no way and that best happened. Friend. 
And is and best friends with John Lovett. <laughs> and just best friends with John Lovett. <laughs> Which, uh, we'll, we'll talk John Lovett towards the end, but like, like seem like different crews. Different crews for John Lovett and Reggie Jackson. So I don't think that's look, a particularly hot take. I agree with you. So you look at the three main characters, Gus, Richie, and Clark. You know, Gus has got a hot wife and a real job. Um, Richie works at a video store and lives with his brother, Howie, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and Clark is a paper boy who lives with his grandfather or with his grandmother. Richie and Clark being friends makes all the sense in the world to me. But how did Gus, who we know didn't go to high school with them, you know, find himself being so close to what can only be described as two misfits? You know what? That, that's, that's a very good question. You threw it at me this morning. I've been thinking all day. <laughs> the, um, the, the only thing that would make – buy a movie? Like, did he rent – something about renting a movie with one of them or AA? It probably wouldn't even be like an AA <laughs> thing. Like, there's no – you know? Like, and they also, they also, when you think about it, couldn't have been friends from growing up because if they were, Gus would have bullied those kids. Gus and he would have. I mean, unless if Gus was doing, maybe Gus was proactively trying to uh, to right the wrongs of his childhood by being friends with these guys. But it really it, something switched in Gus, and we don't find out what and what caused him to be friends with these complete, uh, for lack of a better term, weenies. They are your prototypical weenies. Fair enough. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where, um, you know, Jerry is the head of the Little League and the quintessential, you know, jock douche. Uh, he's played by Craig Kilborn, who plays the role perfectly. Uh, and his kid makes Nelson um, legitimately eat shit during the movie. Like, puts his head in the ground and makes him eat poop. I don't care what kind of a jerk parent you are. How do you as a parent know that your kid is literally making his peers eat shit every day. That, that's a – look, I don't have any kids, and I, I feel like I would like my parents to defend me. I would like my dad to come to my defense with no matter what I do. The, uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. You, you kind of got to really – I mean, I it's like not so. as tough of a, it's not as tough to swallow as the kid who's swallowing shit. But I know what you mean. Exactly. It's like I mean, you can't. That's that's a toughie. That is a real. That's a real oops. That's like. So now you got to jail so for that. You got it. As the parent or the kid. The kids got to go to jail, right? I'm I'm not okay. super well versed in the laws of eating poop, so I'd have to get back to you on that one. If anyone, yeah, send me an email if anyone figures out what the uh, punishment for forcing another kid to eat poop is. So I think it's sexual harassment. Yeah, I could see that. So Nelson's dad, Mel, played by John Lovitz, is a tech billionaire. Um, and his whole idea is, you know, the bench warmers are these three nerds. You know, they'll beat all of these Little League teams in the tournament, and the winner gets a brand-new stadium, which the bench warmers say they're going to win for Nelson and his buddies. My question is, if you have all this money, why not just build the baseball stadium for your kids and your friends and their friends to play on, and then you're just done? Like, no matter what, you could just choose who gets the stadium 
why deal with all these douchebag parents and kids in the first place? There may be a tax ramification. There may be, you think like a, because it's like a donation, it's a write-off. Yeah, there's that, that could be one possible thing. The other one would be, I think if, if like winning, it feels a lot better to win something than be handed something. I'm with you. You know, like if I Venmoed you five bucks, you'd be pretty happy. If we played a game of 2K and then I had to Venmo you the five bucks, you're like, man, like, good, good. I feel I accomplished something. Money one is the best kind of money. I agree. So, you know, Gus, so Gus is a landscaper. It seems like he has his own business. You know, Richie works at the video store. Um, and at one point, um, is, it, it's, is it Seven who's the robot, who is uh, Mel's robot? Um, he yeah. takes over He takes over Clark's paper route and does a paper on Clark's door that says it's a landscaping convention so that his wife thinks that he's at work during his time away. Um, but my question is, you know, is are, are these guys calling in sick and telling their bosses, hey, I'm going to play Little Leaguers in baseball? Like, how does this whole thing work, given that they actually are grown adults with jobs? You know, I I think that is – I can't um, – well, you got to think, who's hiring them in the first place? True. And if they're hiring these guys, they're probably not expecting – a first person in, last person, last person out type work ethic to begin with. So it probably wasn't much of a surprise. All right, so I need you to use your imagination here. So one of the uh, support characters in the movie who plays a big role uh, is Richie's brother, Howie, played by Nick Swartzen. Um, Howie Similar is incredibly... Uh, I would say if you want to look into your... Uh, your your repertoire of of Nick Swartzen characters, Bucky Larson. Yeah, it's pretty similar. Uh, so Howie plays a big role in the movie because in the semifinal, when all three guys are on base for the first time, he steps up to the plate, gets hit by a pitch, and the bench warmers win and go to the finals. Um, but my question is, what do you think caused Howie to become so afraid of the sun? Um. You know, the, 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 sun, the sun is hot. That is undeniable. The sun is definitely hot. And the sun is bright and hurts your eyes if you look at it too long. Is there a chance he looked in the sun too long and got really hot and couldn't see so good? It's a possibility. But does that explain him eating sunscreen? Uh, no, it does not. It also doesn't explain how in the beginning of the movie, why he's afraid to leave the house. Yeah, you know, he's probably my favorite character in the movie. He is, he is really an oddball. But my favorite character in the movie is the guy who hits Howie with the pitch, Carlos, um, who's a 30-year-old Dominican man that the Little League team in the semifinals, coached by Tim Meadows, pick up to pitch for them the last few innings of the game to try to beat the bench warmers. Um, I have a lot of questions with this, but the first one of which is, you know, why is there just a 30-year-old Dominican man who's ready to go in and play baseball against the Little Leaguers at the drop of a hat? Well, he was drinking. I, was he drinking Jaeger? I'm not quite he sure was what drinking, he was drinking. 
I think I want to say tequila in hindsight, which may have been a tad bit racist on the uh, writers end of things. Jaeger would have been subtle if you ever. So how that? I mean, he was just ready to go. Uh, I guess it was a little bit racist to just assume you could pay off the one Dominican guy we see in the entire movie to to pitch baseball, but you know, it is what it is. Different time. Um, and Carlos, when he's hitting Howie, he's yelling about his ex-girlfriend, Maria, why did you leave me? Um, after the game, Carlos, after losing, pukes on Tim Meadows' character uh, and passes out on the field. Uh, with Carlos, you know, down in the dumps like he is at the end of the movie, do you ever think he got Maria back? Boy, it would have taken years. Um, and even if that was rock bottom, to get someone back, you got to be – you got to go all the way to the bottom and then like basically double your peak. So Carlos has a long way, a long way to go. Maybe during this quarantine, he can give her a shot, but I mean, this is probably his best shot he's had in the last 14 years, I would say. So to get Carlos to play, um, they give the umpire what is called a fake birth certificate uh, with a $10 bill in it and a green crown drawn message that says, I am 12. Uh, my questions for you are, one, do you think if it wasn't the color green that it would have had an impact uh, on whether or not Carlos was allowed to play? And two, do you think – what do you think the bottom line bribe would have had to been for the umpire to allow Carlos to play? Like if they had offered $5, is Carlos still allowed to take the mound that day? You know, uh, I think the ump is just looking for something. I think as low as five, he probably takes it. Because you got to realize, five bucks in 06, you're getting, you can still get your whole sandwich at Subway after the game. You can still get that whole footlong. That's true. You're getting the $5 footlong. You're getting the $5 footlong if you're if, in 06. So I would probably assume he does it for five. Um, if you're going to do it for 10, your morals are inherently shaky at best. Uh, the cream crayon was... I mean, at least they showed effort. It was, it was a, I think they, the piece of paper just kind of was a good show of faith and it wasn't just handing over the money. So I'd say $5 and the piece of paper gets it done. If it was laminated, he may have done it for free. But I guess that wasn't, was not an option. So the cathartic moment of the movie is when um, Gus goes to visit the home of a child that he bullied as a kid, Marcus, um, who's down there playing with his Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, setting up his whole play set. And again, Gus bullied Marcus as a kid so badly that, you know, he never left home. And the idea is he never played baseball. Um, and at the end of the movie, Marcus does a whole big show to forgive Gus publicly. Um, in my mind, though, and I think you agree, is the Marcus character just kind of a ripoff of the Steve Buscemi character in Billy Madison? Yeah. I, that when you think back on movie bullies and their victims, that's probably the uh, the one that jumps to mind first. And the whole make amends visit as a turning point for the main character. I mean, like I guess Sandler and Schneider are friends, so they can rip each other off. Anyone with a sophisticated movie IQ like you and I have would be able to identify the parallel almost immediately. All right, my last question for this movie. So the movie ends with the message that, you know, even if you're a geek, you could get the pretty girl at the end of the movie. Um, both Clark and Richie 
are, you know, kissing their respective, uh, I guess, now significant others in the Pizza Hut where the team is celebrating. Um, in fact, Clark says it's way better than macaroni. <coughs> he ends up with a random blonde girl. Ricky is with the girl from the video library who likes salads. My question for you is, Clark or Richie, who outkicked their coverage more? Clark or Richie? Man, I'll be honest. Like, the thing with, with most David Spade movies, Spade, he has a way of outkicking his coverage in all these movies. But um, Napoleon Dynamite, he doesn't always, like, he, doesn't, he actually knows his role pretty well. And doesn't always shoot for shoot for ten in his female counterparts. Look no further than Napoleon Dynamite. I wouldn't describe her as as a ten, but so for Napoleon Dynamite to actually reel in the big one here was pretty shocking. Yeah, I'm gonna go John Herter as well. Um, and a big shout out to Gus because even though you know he didn't get the girls again because he's married, he's the biggest winner of all because. Uh, He's the one who's going to have a baby. And as he so eloquently pointed out to all of the Little League kids, perhaps inappropriately, um, you know, he got the baby because he was doing his wife all night, which is the circle of life at its finest. Uh, so that was the bench warmers. We will see what movie we come back with next week. We usually decided a couple of days before. Um, but, Bryce, any concluding thoughts for this week's podcast? Um, yeah. Um, please, if you are on Instagram, do not vote for Spud. If you could, I would highly advise voting T League. I I like the thing. I I I'm, I got T League and the thing in the finals. Fair enough. I am also Team Slap Ball. Uh, we are not a Spud friendly podcast. Uh, with Bryce Holden, my name is Chase Minorski. This is the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. Stay safe out there.